1: Hi there, I'm Carla Nappi and this is the New Books Network Seminar. Welcome to the podcast. I'm really excited to share with you today a conversation with Ken Wark about the book General Intellects, 21 Thinkers for the 21st Century. This came out with Verso Books in 2017. So the shape of the book looks like this. There's an introduction that lays out some of the most important um, and Uh, some of the themes that come up uh, quite a bit in the chapters to come. It orients us toward the kind of work that the chapters do and the way that the chapters are going to speak to each other over the course of the pages um, to come. Then there are 21 chapters, each focusing on the work of of a particular thinker that use the work of that thinker to open up conversations about um, kind of larger themes and issues that I think, as you'll hear in the conversation to come, Um, are of broad relevance to probably a lot of us listening to this podcast and a lot of us working in or alongside academia today. So you'll hear some themes coming up in the conversation um, that at least for me as a reader emerged as being particularly important to how I engaged with this book. So you'll hear me asking about um, labor at the university, um, talking about uh, the way that some of the chapters really speak to some conversations that are happening right now among friends and colleagues about what it is to be a human, um, working with other humans in academia, next to academia, outside of academia. Um, and related to it. All of that is going to come up in the conversation. So what I hope is that you will find your own copy of the book, um, either read it and or potentially teach with it. Because as you'll hear, the chapters stand alone as anchors for broader conversations as much as they work as a conversation within the covers of the book um, and an experience for a single reader. That is to say, it works if you are just picking it up and reading it by yourself to learn a bunch of stuff. It also works if you're using it in a classroom, either an upper level undergrad or a graduate student classroom, I think, to teach with. So uh, with that, I will leave you to the conversation. Um, I had a lot of fun with this one, um, and I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. And thank you so much for listening and for your support of the channel. I'm here today to talk with Mackenzie Wark about general intellects, 21 thinkers for the 21st century. Welcome back to the New Books Network, Ken. Welcome to the New Books Network seminar, and thanks for making time to talk with me today.
2: Thank you for having me back, Carla.
1: So since we've spoken before about your book, Molecular Red, which I'll say for listeners, um, it's a fabulous book, and you should go run and pause this and check out that podcast or put that on your queue for next time, I won't ask you how you came to work in the field because that's something we've talked about before. Instead, can you start us off by saying a little bit about the genesis of the book we're talking about today? How did you come to this particular project and how did you decide to publish it in this particular shape?
2: All right. So uh, general Intellects is uh, 21 pieces, all about 4,000 words, each about sort of separate individual uh, authors. And the, the simple answer is this came from teaching my uh, master's level seminar uh, to grad students, PhD students do it as well. But the, the framework is a liberal a liberal Studies MA. So Liberal Studies is usually a great books kind of a thing, and I wanted to do it in a different way, which was, well, what's a, a slice in the opposite direction of contemporary writers, all still alive, all still working now, who are kind of interesting, and that would give... Uh, graduate students are sort of a broad range of, uh, you know, sort of toeholds in, in different parts of the, the academic and intellectual world. Uh, so they're written a little bit for a, a general audience, but but pitched, you know, just a little bit high for a general reader. It helps to have a little bit of a background in uh, humanities and social sciences. But apart from that, they don't. the pieces don't assume too much. Uh, they, they kind of explain the specialised languages of the people who are in it. So, yeah, it started as as blog posts, really, and those were, um, you know, really not very well edited. I would just put them up so students could read them. Uh, and the in the comments, people would always say, you know, there's typos in this. And, and I would say, well, if you're volunteering <laughs> to proofread it, like, how about it? And no one ever volunteered, right? <laughs> uh, so the book version is much, much more carefully edited. And, you know, other eyes besides mine have been over it. And, you know, inevitably there's still probably some <laughs> typo somewhere, but you know they they read much more cleanly. Uh, so I thought it'd be nice to sort of strap them together. Uh, and there's 21, which is more weeks than are in a semester. So you know, as a teaching tool, you could actually you know pick from it and and construct a course out of it if you wanted. I know people do that. Uh, You can use it as a reference when you just sort of want to know. Um, I've heard of this Zizek guy. Can someone just explain something about him? So it it sort of has that sort of function as well. So it's sort of a little bit sort of pedagogic in that way. But I think the other reason to do is I think if there's a problem with intellectual life, it's all the in-between stuff. It's how do you relate things together? Mm -hmm. Um, so my, my appointment is in a graduate school of uh, social sciences that includes philosophy. Uh, it is extremely hard to have conversations uh, across those sorts of divides, and the, the conversation between is always treated as secondary. So it's kind of designed around the question of uh, how would you articulate different kinds of knowledge together, because uh, that strikes me as a problem not only for the university but for the world <laughs> is how we might start to do that.
1: Mm-hmm. And I really love that about the book. And I'll just echo um, the sense that this is a really, really useful book, or it will be, I think for me, I haven't taught with it yet. But I can imagine so many ways of teaching with it, not just in a graduate seminar, but also in an undergraduate context, maybe a kind of advanced undergraduate context. I've actually so done that
2: done that as well. I, I started using them in Introduction to Cultural Studies, because some of the pieces fit to that framework and it's it's sort of useful for students because it sort of articulates the languages and projects of people in a sort of condensed way and then of course you obviously want students to read the actual text but, but here's a condensed version that focuses on the concepts like what are the concepts and how does this writer articulate them.
1: Exactly and I think the chapters are really really useful in that context for um, I would imagine helping students or really anyone who's not familiar with these particular works and we'll talk about the specifics in a moment to start to sort of learn a conceptual language mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. um so there's it's not too it's not overwhelming in any individual chapter and i think as you work your way through or just pick some of them um i can imagine talking about them in seminar being a way to help students get familiar and comfortable right with one concept or two before moving on and building up um, a more robust language to talk about these issues um kind of you know more systematically so i really love that about the book
2: although hopefully not and not too th- familiar because that the the thing about a concept is it should be a little unfamiliar because it's about mm-hmm. breaking and you know breaking the familiarity of language by using a slightly different one is is one of the tasks.
1: That's right. Well, but also I think um, as you make a conceptual language your own and develop confidence, mm. right? Mm. I think it takes, at least my experience in graduate school, you know, back in the Stone Age, 7,000 <laughs> years ago or whatever it was, um, it's, it takes a little bit of time to develop the kind of confidence, yes. right? To, to break open... Um, And I think the chapters are set up in such a way that they're not too overwhelming. So you can start using them, trying them out, like practicing them in conversation, and then developing more confidence that way. So, is there. Is there anything that you left out of this particular volume? Because there are 21 thinkers, right? And you mentioned that you published these as blog posts in terms of your own choice of what to include and what to exclude. Is there anything before we get into the chapters themselves that didn't make it into the book that, um, that you would want to mention for us? Uh,
2: I've, I've done 45 of these just, wow. just in the okay. last few years. So, <laughs> so it's, uh, it's definitely a selection, uh and then I didn't want it to be like a a lot of people do what it seemed to me essentially random collections of their occasional pieces uh Mm -hmm. often based on commissions so you get commissioned to write something and you do it and then you put them together I did not want to write that book uh so I chose which authors to write about uh you know these I think maybe one was a commissioned review you know out of the 21 these were things I chose and then I was sort of you know, intuitively looking for patterns and relationships. Uh, you know, it's, it's a little bit push and pull in terms of I think these will fit together and then you do them and you figure out which ones do. <laughs>
1: uh,
2: and then it, it, it to me the book does have a bit of a, a structure in that it sort of walks you through two sort of fairly counterintuitive readings of Marx, then a whole bunch of Italian and French versions of sort of autonomous theory, uh, a bit of what's happening today in uh, what used to be British cultural studies, a bit of the psychoanalytic approach, uh, three people from political theory, uh, a couple of outliers that really raise interesting questions about technology, uh, then media studies, speculative realism, science studies. So there's there's kind of, you know, the authors are grouped, and there's a, a way you sort of move from one field to another. Uh, in a bit of an arc through it so it, it took a lot of sort of selecting and and sort of negotiating and uh i really i really also did use you know kind of like quota systems. so so this book uh you know has to be 50 percent women uh mm-hmm. i'm doing a second collection that has slightly different ways that you would play with that of like you know i must read outside you know uh in, in you know it really doesn't hurt to give yourself a quota because then you discover things, right? You're like, mm-hmm. oh, I have habits that are biased in terms of who I would go read. So, with this one, uh, and actually, it wasn't hard. Uh, I'm going to find women to read. The, I'm doing a second volume that's much more to get out of the West. Uh, so, I got to stop reading, you know, sort of European American authors and move away. And once you make that choice, you discover, oh, like, it's not really a quota. It's like, that's just more interesting anyway.
1: That's awesome, actually, um, to hear. And I think we'll talk a little bit more about that in the conversation to come. Um, I think, and I'll just flag for listeners, um, I think a lot of people in at least my communities and my worlds are really thinking a lot, right, about our own biases, our own choices, mm-hmm. when we put together syllabi, when we, um, in our citation practices, this is a really important issue right now for a lot of people mm-hmm. um, who are writers, who are scholars, who are academics. So it's really, um, I think it's really helpful to, to hear that this was an important part of your um basically what you brought to this project and what you're bringing to projects in the future um and it's really really important and it's not always easy to do but it can be really joyful right
2: yeah and- it's like it's it's really I, I work a lot with writing with constraints and mm-hmm. like another one here was you know they should be four thousand words long um mm-hmm. and you can break them of course um but yeah one was it's going to be you know 50 percent women uh, right. But it's it's not a limitation. It's like it just structures your practice and then you sort of discover, oh, well, you know, why didn't I just read those people in the first place? Like, I, right. you know, I have an inbuilt, uh, it's not just me, it's the way fields are structured is that, you know, mm-hmm. certain things don't get attention. And I think yeah. you have to sort of, you know, consciously fight that.
1: I mean, I think right now, and, and we don't have to talk about this too much because mm. I want to make sure that we get into the book, but another related issue just to put on the table because I know this is also very much in the air um, in the kinds of conversations around the issues that we've been talking about is not just who to include and to be you know, as inclusive as possible, mm. but also how, how do you phrase it, contemporary debates about the behaviors of certain scholars i'm Hmm. trying to choose my words very carefully and be very vague um, while still being pointed and i don't want to be specific but um basically the the choices that we make to teach certain theorists or not can be just as much about other things that are not always um, maximal inclusion do you see what i mean
2: yes and i'll I'll just say i left somebody out because of bad behavior but it okay. that, but it is a more complicated question than that but yeah that, that's a topic for another oh, time yeah. I, think.
1: I mean that's a that's probably a 5 hour long exactly. hour conversation itself I, I, I just wanted
2: to yeah and yeah. It's, that that one would want to think twice about that and you know uh, the work versus the person. All. It's complicated, right? But yeah, I, I did let, I leave somebody out, let me just say. <laughs> uh,
1: and, I ask, and I'm and i not going to ask you who no, that is. No. <laughs> so let's get to the book itself, though. Um, while this is a book about 21 thinkers who are not you, one of the things I really appreciated um, speaking um, back to the issue of you know how we choose to make a conversation among um, disparate things and bring them together is that the chapters consistently approach these other authors' works from the particular particular perspective of you as a reader Mm. and like unapologetically and unambiguously. And I love that um, because we also get a clear sense of some of your own contributions to the conversations you're inviting us into. And I think that's really helpful as a thread that links all the way through. And we'll talk about some of that um, in the rest of the interview to come. Okay, so let's talk about the very beginning, the title page, the title of the book. The opening sentence of the introduction is, where are the public intellectuals like we used to have back in the good old days, right? Um, So explicitly, instead of talking about public intellectuals, um, the book talks about general intellects. So because this is this seems to be such an important decision, Ken, can you talk um, to us a little bit about this notion of general intellects? Um, what kind of work mm-hmm. does it do for you? What's important for us to understand? And what's importantly different um, from talking about public intellectuals?
2: I think the, as a rhetorical figure, public intellectuals is very much connected to a narrative of decline. Uh you know, I've been reading and writing this stuff for 30 years and, you know, public intellectuals always been in decline. I don't remember when it wasn't. And then you go back to Julian Bender and you say, oh, well, it's, that's the trope, like the figure is that it's something, there's a lost unity in the past that's then, you know, sort of fallen apart. So I just don't find it a useful kind of category. Um, it's, it's beloved of sort of middle-brow journalists uh, who think everybody should write for exactly the size of audience that they write for. Um, so if you're an academic, you write for too small an audience, but somehow their audience is exactly the right size and you're like, but you're not Fox news. So like, why, why is your audience the right size instead of, you know, like Sean Hannity's and they're like, Oh no, that stuff is terrible. And you're like, you know, as far as scholars are concerned, some of your stuff is a little bit not, you know, great. (laughs) So it's, it's tied to, you know, sort of, um, um, professional habitus, you know, what people You know the world people inhabit. It's just not a useful term. So, yeah, what I think concepts do is you just frame things a little bit differently by you know inventing a language for it. And in English, we're never very comfortable with that. I think you know there's a lot of policing of language where you're supposed to stick to the obvious words kind of thing. But if you just change the language, you can perceive it a little differently. So long as you're not you know putting too much. glamour onto the fact that there will be a specialised terminology for something. You know, it has to be a sort of a modest exercise. So general intellect is, is it's quite frankly misappropriated from, from Marx. Uh, general intellect is a, a really interesting concept in Marx that uh, particularly Italian and some French readers of Marx made a lot of where Marx is interested in the way that the production system is incorporating not just all of labour becoming abstract labour within capital, but something else, which he calls general intellect. So to what extent is this sort of a machine system that's uh, subsuming intellect out of the human into the mechanical? Uh, and like that's a really good starting point for thinking about uh, the age of, you know, sort of planetary computation and the digital and so forth, and how it's kind of absorbed something other than manual labour. But I wanted to sort of misapply the term a bit. I think, well, who are the people... Where, you know, you don't get to choose the means of knowledge production you work in, but who are the people within it who sort of have some concept of what it is they're struggling in and against and who try to make concepts that have a generality that grab, you know, some chunk of it and perceive it. Uh, but where no one's ever going to have a theory of everything because you're always viewing things through your own labour process. So how do things look from the point of view of particular knowledge practices but where they're open at the edges and you can connect different perspectives together? So that was why general intellects struck me as a sort of a useful reframing.
1: Fabulous. Thank you. Now, when you're talking in the introduction about general intellects, right, as, and this is a quote from the book, um, and this just really kind of recaps what you've already been saying, people who are mostly employed as academics and mostly pretty successful at that, but who try through their work to address more general problems about the state of the world today, right? This issue of academics um, is important. And you mention and you talk a little bit about the, the consequences of the fact that most of these people are working. Working at universities, right? Um, so the university becoming a business, um, etc. Um, so in the introduction. This is, again, just a line from the introduction. Um, you expand on this. You say, the heavy dependence on the university as a context for support has left its scars on the work general intellects get to do. So this is something I'm really interested in. So selfishly, I would just mm-hmm. want to ask you to talk about that. Can mm-hmm. you talk a little bit um, about this, right, the, the importance of the university as a context, and in what sense has it left marks or scars on the work of general intellects?
2: My uh, main source to thinking about this was a book by Reggie Debray called, uh, in English, it's uh, Teachers, Writers, Celebrities. And it was looking at three eras of intellectual production and how they're shaped by the kind of industrial basis of it. Uh, so, you know, we sort of think of, yeah, you know, why is there no great intellectual like Jean-Paul Sartre today? And you know, it's like, well, he had a stipend from his publisher. Mm-hmm. Like he, he drew a salary just to be himself. Like it's such a mm-hmm. unique thing, you know, why, why isn't there another Pasolini? You know, it's like, well, you know, uh, he wrote thousands of book reviews, you know, he was everywhere. He's on television, on radio, uh, you know, so he's like, there's sources of income, there's modes of work. Uh, but it's extremely hard to do any of those things now, but the actual means of intellectual production have changed. Like they became digital. You're inside a new uh, set of technical forces. And and those are subsuming the university into them. Like the university is then no longer the separate place where you got to get away from that industrialization. So the, the space you get to work in is kind of limited in that way. Uh, and I'm interested in, in sort of, yeah, in academic survival strategies or, or para-academic survival strategies as well. You know, how have people managed to uh, keep doing interesting work in that context? Uh, and, and some have done it because they're in very privileged intellectual situations and some have not. Like some have really, you know, just kind of found ways to make it work. So I wanted to offer a kind of range of models in that sense.
1: Awesome. So let's get into the chapters from here. Um, Now, as we've talked about already, the shape of the book is such that it group. I mean, there are really clear groups um, that cluster together these 21 case studies. And we're not going to talk about all the case studies, but we'll sort of dip in. And in particular, I'm going to guide us to moments um, that seem like they raise uh, more general or kind of consistent concerns that permeate the book. So let's start with chapter one. Um, This is on Amy Wendling. It's called Marx, Metaphysics, and Meat Physics. And I, You know, we talked about this when we talked about your previous book. I love Mm -hmm. some of these um, terms that you raise here. Meat physics is one of them. Um, That kind of stays with you. Okay, so this is a chapter that talks about Wendling's work, and in particular, it raises the book Karl Marx on Technology and Alienation. So there's a lot of really interesting stuff going on here, but I want to ask you to introduce for us two kind of key concepts or ideas that are going to come up later. One of them is the idea of the hacker class. Now, I know this is something that you've written about a lot, um, and I just want to ask you to briefly introduce what do we need to know about what the hacker class is and why it's important to understand what's important to you about Wenling's work here.
2: Yeah, and and maybe it's not a good name. Uh, I've been trying to, uh, you know, sort of uh, conceptually articulate you know, really for 20 years, uh, what class do I belong to myself?
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Uh, you know, what, if, if you think as a Marxist, you think in terms of class and, and class categories uh, generated out of firstly the forces of production but secondly the relations of production, uh, well, the forces of production changed enormously in my lifetime. It, it just struck me as obvious that they probably generate new class relations out of that. Um, so what does it mean to do this work with information? Um, it's, it's not quite labour. Uh, in the sense that I I still have some margin of control over uh, what and when. It's harder to quantify. Uh, It it sort of doesn't quite mesh with uh, an industrial system in the same way. Uh, You can't think of it in terms of uh, a kind of thermodynamic model, which I think Marx still has in the background of his mind when he's thinking about what labour is and does. So it's something else. And then in terms of the relations production, we sort of forget that intellectual property is relatively new. Uh, copyright and patent go back a long way, but that these things are all intellectual property and and are basically private property rights is actually really only about half a century old. Uh, And that information would be a thing it could attach itself to rather than to the notion of the book or the artwork uh, and so on. Like that's also relatively new as well. So, yeah, what comes out of that uh, convergence of coming from the forces of production uh, digitization coming from the relations of production uh, the notion that information is something that can be property uh, I think it generates a new class relation those who are uh, owners of uh, the means of production of information what I call a vectorless class from you know vector I got that from Paul Verilia. Uh and I, I called us the hacker class which seemed like a interesting word 20 years ago it, it now it's like evil Russians you know <laughs> 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 uh, but it's sort of like you always had to had to fight for, you know, a, a language that's not criminalized if, if you're a subordinate class. Uh, so I, I kind of, you know, maybe one still has to fight for it as, you know, to, to hack is a good old-fashioned Saxon word, you know, really meaning to cut so there's a kind of a digital feeling to it already. Uh, so maybe we could kind of uh, try to re-embrace that and, and think about who we are. So as uh, uh, someone who works in a university, how is what I do actually really pretty much the same uh, in terms of a class basis as people who work in different disciplines of the university, but also people who work uh, in the other kinds of industries producing information? You know, how do we have a class interest? And I think we're finally seeing a bit of that emerge in quote unquote labor struggles in the tech sector. Uh, People who never really quite thought they were workers are now raising questions, like the walkout at Google is kind of a nice example. They're like, there's something wrong with the way you're managing the workplace, Uh, and you're, you know, happy bromides about how you'll fix it all, you know, don't, you know, we don't believe them. So people are threatening to walk out, uh, discovering a kind of class consciousness, but one that's maybe not quite labour.
1: Mm -hmm. So this idea, I'm going to zip us ahead and then um, kind of circle back, but this idea of intellectual property, of labor as potentially cognitive labor, potentially something called something else, is something that recurs in several chapters of the book, right? When you you talk about um, Botong's cognitive capitalism, um, you raise the idea of cognitive labor that permeates the work. And then in Bifo Berardi's Soul as Commodity in that chapter, um, you talk about the term kind of cognitive as potentially being too immaterial, right? Mm-hmm. And not grounded enough in kind of material, material reality to be useful um, in the way that you'd like it to be. So I'd love to hear a little bit about that, right? Sort of what, how, what's important to you about talking about what we might call cognitive labor in terms that push us more into the material and why and how is that so important?
2: So I'll just take one step back and uh, so the reason I start with uh, Amy Wendling is, is that she's really read Marx on technology, including the a you know, massive amount of unpublished notebooks. Uh, not many people have read this stuff. Uh, so it's, it's much richer. And, and Marx is sort of thinking his way out of a, a sort of metaphysical Hegelian way of thinking about labor into a sort of a thermodynamic model uh, of, of a kind of metabolic process. But he, he's dead before information as a concept, like there isn't a science of information in Marx's time, it's missing. So you have to sort of keep reading through the sciences and critical literature on the sciences, I think, to, to finish Marx's project. Well, you never finish it, but to continue it. The people who I think sort of realized that this was an issue, but you know, I'm, I'm not happy with the... the languages that came up around it is firstly the Italian uh, autonomous Marxists and then secondly some people in France who picked up their work when Antonio Negri was forced to uh, into exile in Italy. So I sort of read, um, you know, Verno and, uh, Racerato and, uh, Bifo and Yanmouli Butang, who's, who's French as, as sort of working in that space. And they, they start talking about something like, uh, a cognitive capitalism. And they start talking about immaterial labor and this sort of, you're using a, a sort of a, using language in a way that introduces new areas to look at, but I just don't think it's quite the right language because you're sort of like the way it plays with the language is maybe not sufficient. And it's a little dangerous to sort of say, well, there's material labor, which is like factories and stuff. And then there's immaterial labor, which is cognitive and ideas and well wait a minute you know we already know from amy wendling and, and from technology studies that this is all based on a huge infrastructure a huge apparatus and i think that falls away falls out of view a little too much so i'm not not too happy with the idea of immaterial or cognitive as useful bits of language here and to think of a, a cognitive capitalism makes it sound more rational than it actually is because this is driven by desires and 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 uh you know, impulses of bodies as anything else. So that, that struck me as like a little misleading as well.
1: That's right. Now you, you raise the word metabolism or metabolic, mm-hmm. um, just now in your conversation about, um, the particular interpretation of Marx that Wenling is raising. And because this idea of metabolism or metabolic rift, um, in particular, is so important to the work that so many, I think it's one of the threads that weaves through the entire book. Hmm. Um, For listeners who may hear the word metabolism and not really understand what that means in this context, can you say just a little bit about that?
2: I think Marx late in his life is really grappling with this problem of, you know, how can you think historically about uh, a natural, technical, social metabolism that's planetary in scale? Like, how do you even think that? Uh, and i think he's just starting to grapple with that as a problem and he's reading the uh, scientific materialism that flourished in germany after 1848 Uh, that sort of usually left out of his bio a little bit too and a lot of these thinkers um they're not canonic because they were thinking through the science of the time a lot of which is now obsolete so you sort of lose them as well uh so uh, although you know like Hegel's scientific writings seem to be nonsense as far as I can tell, but somehow he's still okay to talk about. Like, you know, I don't know why. But anyway, uh, if if you're sort of paying attention to what's going on in the sciences, and I think Marx was, then how do you keep moving forward with that? Uh, So if there is something like uh, a metabolism that would have been thought in thermodynamic terms, what happens when we sort of add the category of information and, you know, which – and, and the way I'm using that, it's a word that's been around for a long time, but maybe not as a concept. I think we only have it as a concept after somebody like Claude Shannon gives you a mathematical theory of information, right? Mm-hmm. So it's like, oh, that's something you can actually build a science on and, and instrumentalize, which is key to this as well, right? Uh, knowledge follows instrumental, the instrumentalizing of uh, kinds of labor in the interaction with the world. I mean, that, that would be my basic understanding of where science comes from. Mm-hmm. So that's sort of the project is to kind of move forward into a twenty first century and twenty first centuries in the subtitle uh, way of thinking conceptually about uh, planetary scale uh, social technical natural metabolism that's a historical pro- product it's not inherently all natural uh, and which is dysfunctional which obviously doesn't work right and uh, the obvious sign of that is you know catastrophic climate change but you know there are others.
0: mm
1: mm-hmm so one of the other so there's a lot of chapters now that I'm going to be like Mm. surfing past Um, not because they're not fascinating and I want to say that explicitly for listeners Mm -hmm. but because um, only um, because we don't have five hours to talk about Mm. it today but I want to surf us to um, a particular case in a particular chapter that I think is really particularly interesting for me um, as a case study looking at labor at the university and this is chapter 7 Angela McRobbie's crafting precarity Mm. now this is a fascinating Fascinating chapter um, for me uh, in that it speaks to some of the conversations that I think uh, a lot of us are having about work in the university, specifically as it pertains to um, gender in the university and gendered labor. So McRobbie's work considers what happens if one, in the words of the book, looks at the self-making of young working class women as subculture and then traces the paths of young working class women through a contemporary urban landscape concerned with the precariat and the creative industries. So here, as you say um, in the chapter, the work, work becomes a kind of romantic Relationship and the site of the expression of creativity, right? We I think a lot of us listening to this um, might be familiar with the idea and conversations around the idea of, well, if you love your work and you're passionate about your work, right? Like that's the goal and that makes everything okay. This idea of passion, right? And love is being um, kind of describing the relation between working women and their labor. Mm. So, can, can you talk a little bit about this? For you, what's um, particularly interesting and useful in thinking with McRobbie's work here?
2: I mean, McRobbie's a central feature in uh, British cultural studies, which was really important to my formation. Like she, she, to me, was a, a key author. Uh, and the thing about British cultural studies is that it sort of identified what was going on in working class life, you know, most particularly in this case in Britain in the post-war years, which was like, work is boring, so young people invent subculture like you you have a kind of a whole life outside of work where you're trying to kind of express a kind of a creative self and and form collective identities and so on. And so they sort of a dra- they dragged uh, uh, Marxist thought in the direction of thinking about cultures of consumption and practices of consumption. But that sort of assumed you have this sort of, you know, like a factory job or a regular office job. And then you did this, you know, in the off hours, did this other stuff. Uh, but what happened is this sense that, uh, the work process itself should be where the creative and expressive and, you know, the identity should be, should be found, yeah? And uh, there's a kind of uh, a desire to take the sort of energies and the skills and the talents of particularly sort of working-class people and... Uh, that are leisure practices and bring them back into work or to make them work. Uh, And then that then becomes the focus of how you try to, you know, craft a life as a young person, maybe starting late 20th century and and going through to now. So whatever it is you're doing is supposed to be uh, not leisure, but work. Uh, So there's a kind of significant change and she sort of charts that and of how particularly for using working class very broadly uh, working class women in the first world, uh, would would kind of gravitate to fields that seem like it's work but it's creative where but you're paid less and the hours are terrible uh, and you end up in a very precarious work environment precisely because there's a desire to do it uh, employers can exploit that I like well yeah you'll you'll you know I, I teach media cultural studies and one of the things I tell students is you know what you're often better working working for boring companies mm-hmm. right rather than chasing the you know, being a publicist at the fancy fashion house because there you're completely expendable. There's 20 people waiting for your job. Whereas if you're good at this in some like really boring company, you know, they'll, they'll love you and you'll, they'll have to like make a job for you. Um, Cause fewer people are trying to clamber aboard it, you know? So there's, there's a sense in which this um, uh, it's, it, there's a desire to get out of alienated working class labor. Uh, but the thing that you're trying to get into is kind of more exploitable and that's sort of the catch you know, where people are been caught up. And it applies to the university because, you know, look, this was the last good job left in America, uh, but it's gone, yeah, or it's disappearing. Uh, so there's this, a this struggle to become uh, a kind of uh, do a sort of intellectual work where you have some autonomy and, and get to shape, you know, your workplace and things like that. Uh, but either it becomes precarious or for those of us in the full-time, you know, who did get those full-time jobs, there's more and more management of it and we have less and less autonomy over it.
1: That's right. And this chapter um, really looks very carefully at um, the role of the university in all of this. And this is something that we'll come back to. But one of the reasons I wanted to talk a little bit about this chapter is that it really, I think, um, connects up with conversations that, again, a lot of us are having mm. about the precariat within academia, Academia, right? I mean, mm. the, there's this way of narrating the relationship between like, teaching uh, fellows or you know, graduate students who are teaching with their work or um, contract faculty with their work, that's very much a narrative of this kind of romantic relationship where Mm -hmm. um, it's not work because you love it or, Mm -hmm. you know, it's a relationship. And I think there there are real issues, again, that would take probably several more hours to even (laughs) scratch the surface of.
2: And and we should at least just add the the additional piece of uh, the vulnerability of women to that language because of a training where that's what you're supposed to do. Like you're supposed to give, you know uh and macrobi i think is good on that on and the way uh the precarity and gender are connected issues
1: Absolutely. And this is one of the reasons this chapter really um, stuck out for me. Mm-hmm. It's also, uh, you know, it's, this is also related to conversations about teaching evaluations right now, yeah. Right? Yeah, which exactly. we also know that, you know, a lot of what women um, get on these teaching evaluations are evaluations of like how nice they are, like what they look like. I it's, think it's, I got It's my one... job to
2: read them. So I've read thousands of these and it's, it's right, exactly. <laughs> and yeah. true.
1: It's and it's, it's increasingly becoming part of my job to talk about and try to articulate yeah. a position on whether or not, we should be reading them.
2: Right? Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. Which is actually so is a, it could also be a whole podcast in itself, right?
1: Exactly, <laughs> exactly. And we won't, I, but I want to flag this for, for listeners who are particular, yeah. in, particularly interested in those issues. Mm. Chapter seven might McRobbie. be especially mm. useful. Yeah, exactly. Um, the chapter on McRobbie and McRobbie's work, mm. this might be a great anchor for a conversation about this in a seminar. And she's setting she's
2: responding just, to all of that Italian stuff. Like, so it's British cultural yeah. studies responding to all this stuff that happened in Italy at the same time. So, uh, that's why it's, it's a really kind of anchor piece, but then it raises the gender question in that context, which, uh, there are Italian feminists who, who did that, but, but, you know, Bifo and Boutang and Verno don't have a lot to say about gender. Yeah.
1: Right. So let's, uh, since we're talking about, because I brought us here, (laughs) um, the the issue of the role of the university, Mm. chapter 12 on Wendy Brown also Mm. talks about this um, really substantively. This is a chapter that looks um, at, in particular, Brown's undoing the demos, Mm. neoliberalism, stealth revolution. Ken, what's, um, I just want to open this up to you. For you, what's particularly interesting about thinking with Brown's work um, in a way that um, you think is especially exciting or relevant right now.
2: Yeah. And overall, like, you know, like these books are all really good. Like they all do something. Uh, And, and I wanted in reading them to be like generous and selfish at the same time. Mm -hmm. So I'm trying to give what I think is an accurate portrait of the conceptual map of each book, but then I'm also reading it through my own kind of interests at the same time and just seeing how they connect and don't connect. Mm Uh, and the, the brown I find really enabling, but it also seems a little trapped in uh, a political theory that doesn't pay any attention at all to what happens to the forces of production. Like it <laughs> treats the political as a sort of a separate landscape that actually becomes all enveloping as if everything is, everything is always political now. Uh, well, yeah, it's, it's always worth asking that question. But when that, that, that becomes an assumption that everything's political, it no longer does critical work because you just assume that it is <laughs> and you don't ask well, what else is it. Uh, so with, with Brown, I wanted to to sort of ask, uh, well, you know, what if we thought the technical, uh, as being political, but also being other things, then what is it and how does it impact on, uh, this transformation that's often called neoliberal, but where that's become a sort of very expansive term that includes a lot of things, uh, and maybe a little too expansive where it becomes an adjective you just add to everything. Uh, so I wanted to sort of push back a little bit on that, uh, so I sort of reread her um, readings of legal cases um, where I actually don't think Justice Kennedy is doing what she thinks he is. He actually talks about information, and uh, you know he's he's talking about law and information rather than neoliberalism in those particular judgments. So I just wanted to to sort of um, uh, bring a different perspective to Brown uh, and in particular to what had happened to the university and to ask to what extent uh, is what's happening in, in universities. A, a thing that also has a technical driver, uh, the extension of forces of production, the process information in particular ways, caught up with us. And we invented these things in the first place half a century ago, you know. Like it, it came back and bit the university on the ass, if you like, mm-hmm. uh, in a way that reduces spaces of autonomy for labour uh, or for what I call the hacker class. Like that seems to me to be the, the bit to add uh, to what's going on there.
1: Absolutely. Brown. So um, just to elucidate this a little bit or open this up a little bit for Mm -hmm. listeners, um, the way information comes up here, among other things, Is you talk here about um, Monsanto, or the book talks about right? The book that you're talking about talks about Monsanto um, as a kind of business based on making information a commodity. And those are in the words of the book, Mm. right? Um, And this is this idea that information becomes a commodity becomes really important to understanding um, the role of the university as what you call the heart of the military-industrial complex, right? And like, if innovation becomes a commodity, um, like the funding of research becomes geared toward producing innovation or producing information as innovation um, in a way that really has consequences. Um, mm. Is there anything else that you would want to say about what you think of as potentially those consequences? And, um, you know, is where do we go from here? I just uh, I know this is a little bit out of the scope of the chapter, but because mm. the chapter raises this as an issue and I think it's a really important issue right now, it might be worth just spending a couple minutes on it.
2: Yeah, and and there's a sort of established uh, language for thinking about the university's role in the military-industrial complex, and how central it was. Uh, mm-hmm. that, that you know, you could you could date it really back to World War II, as a kind of founding. You know, where that nexus is formed. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know who coined the the phrase the military entertainment complex. Like it wasn't me, but I found it really enabling. It's kind of like, oh yeah, it's a sort of it became a slightly different thing. And there's, a, you know, one of the things that was involved in the university's relation to the military-industrial complex is the invention of computation. Uh, but I think it sort of becomes a separate thing, like it's oh, you you figured out how to instrumentalize a new thing like information, you know, it's. Shannon gives you a way to quantify it. Uh, you, you can sort of think about it as a separate thing, build technologies on it. Those technologies can control other things. Control is one of the main things that it does. Uh, so to sort of make that a little more historically specific um, and that it's it, it starts to connect to or, or, and grow out of particular universities, uh, some of which, of course, are on the West Coast, yeah, mm-hmm. uh, because that's where aerospace was. Uh, you know, and there are other reasons, but, you know, Stanford and Berkeley and a few other places, these are the places that, you know, where this sort of really ramps up. Uh, and that then gets caught up in a new regime of intellectual property. Uh, new categories of property have to be invented to cover all of this. And then there's a decision uh the changes universities relation to property that's generated out of their own laboratories. So you start to change what a university is. uh, And like that strikes me as a really significant set of uh determinants, uh, where you sort of you figure out, oh, the the kind of engine that's driving this economy is essentially pieces of the university. Mm -hmm. Uh, The other piece of this is companies then replicate what that bit of the university is. Uh, So it's like, all right, let's get the universities to do the high risk research where we don't really know what the payoff is so we can socialize that and the state will still take care of that but let's privatize more and more of that in new forms of property that maybe create different kinds of relations of production so I'm not even sure this is still capitalism at this point it's definitely uh, a system of exploitation uh, but it seems to be based on asymmetries of information of treating information as property of being able to harvest it without having to pay for it These are relatively new ways of going about organising a political economy, if that's what this still is.
1: Mm-hmm. And I think but um, at least in, in some of the places that I have worked at mm. uh, in the mm. past, um, I, what the companies are valuing and funding, right, mm. then feeds back into what the universities are funding. And so it really does yeah. shape um, what's supposed to be, quote, pure, whatever that means, mm. um, you know, pure research um, in very particular ways that, you know, the, yeah. the, the, there's always, really a feedback. Always do.
2: I mean, it's, right. it's, that part's not novel, but it's kind of supercharged and mm-hmm. it's attached to very different fields to what it was, uh, you know, 60, 70 years ago.
1: Absolutely. Uh, electrical
2: engineering used to be a minor field.
1: Wow.
2: Uh, and it's kind of why, you know, why did Harvard not end up owning this? Because it was a minor field, like it grew out of the side of, you know.
1: And I and- think like, yeah, any of us who are interested in, um, in and care about the humanities right now, whatever you call that mm-hmm. category. Right. And like, I'm not committed to humanities as a, as a term. Um, but this is something that um, comes up a lot also in conversations right now. Um, thinking about how you, um, conceive usefulness, right. Um, but uh, anyway, that's another five hour long conversation, but this is, I think really, really, um, It's another way in which this particular chapter of the book, but rather the whole book um, itself, is really relevant to and important in anchoring conversations right now, either in discussions or individually or in seminars, that are really, really important to thinking about where we are and where we might be going.
2: And the thing I'd say about that is the problem with academic fields is that they're often organized around formal problems Mm -hmm. that are made by the field rather than around problems that come from... Uh, struggles in everyday life and I I kind of remain a Marxist in the sense that the agenda for knowledge is set by struggles in everyday life the the agenda set by formal problems in the field is secondary uh, which is not a great way to have a career in any field to be perfectly (laughs) honest but it is a way to sort of keep reading interesting stuff and not get sort of caught up in you know debates that you look back on 20 years later and you wonder why the hell was that even a thing
1: Well, I think one of the really interesting things that's happening, and I don't know that this is new, it's just something that I think in my lifetime as a person involved in this business has taken on um, increasing uh, relevance. A lot more people are talking about this, Mm -hmm. is really a conversation about academics as humans, right? Mm. And so everyday life is not just something that happens outside the university, it's something that happens to us as humans every day when we're working in the university. And so I think the turn toward bringing the self. And the eye back into academic work in fields where that was for a long time trained out of us, right? You're not supposed mm-hmm. to say I when you write a history book for example. This is bringing these conversations about relevance, right? About everyday life into the university in ways that are not necessarily field specific but that mm-hmm. are very particular mm-hmm. to thinking about what it is we're doing as humans Yeah, it, it, that really I think problematizes the separation of what's happening in the university and everyday life in a, in a helpful way for those of us who are trying to make lives here right
2: well you know a, a lot of us just didn't fit very comfortably in that that sort of abstract you know sort of uh uh note of the the figure of the scholar mm-hmm. uh, like it, it kind of didn't you couldn't be that you, only certain people got to be that mm-hmm. uh, so so that needed you know sort of pressure and inquiry
1: well, and this speaks back to one of the things you said at the very beginning of the conversation about your own choices to be inclusive, right? Like who counts, right? And mm-hmm. making sure that there were women here, there were people of color um, in this book and not just, you know, your typical kind of yeah. demographic. <laughs> um, well, the other so, thing worth,
2: worth mentioning here is the star system. So, mm-hmm. so I wrote about some academic stars who are names right. people will recognize, but not everybody. Uh, and so, and I, if, I left out some I didn't think were interesting.
1: <laughs> and this actually brings us really nicely to what I want to um, talk about for the remaining time we have, which mm-hmm. is um, two chapters that are not necessarily um, names that people reading this book are going to immediately be familiar with, but are fascinating. And you call these in the in the intro two unique takes on the body politic. These are chapters fourteen and fifteen on Hiroki Azuma and Paul Preciado. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about these um, in the time that we have because it's so interesting and I just kind of want to make an opportunity to open this up. So Ken, chapter 14 on otaku philosophy you talk about um, this work in the context of an effort to make Japanese media, culture, and theory a bigger part of the global conversation. Mm -hmm. So let's start doing Mm -hmm. that, right? Chapter 14, what's particularly interesting and um, useful for you about Hiroki Azuma's work? And um, can you talk about this in the context of this larger goal of making Japanese media, culture, and theory more present in global conversations?
2: Yeah, he's a fascinating character. And uh, you know, I, I don't speak the language. It's, I, I'm not a specialist in it, uh, but it's like, I just think this stuff was fascinating and people should know about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a particular uh, Japanese uptake of uh, French theory that happens uh, in the late 20th century. Uh, and and it kind of fitted into a different context there because until the crash in the late 80s, Japan is ascendant. Uh, like the the reading of what the postmodern is, is, the japanese future like it's not a kind of break in a kind of a sense of linear history it's it's, it's continuation because it's a different context we're still in the first world but we're in a different part of the first world experiencing the late 20th century in a different way uh, and experiencing the the trauma and the break caused by uh the defeat of the war too right uh and so there's you know uh akira sada there, there's um uh koshin karatani they're doing this in the context of the university but Asuma sort of takes the next step and it's like, oh, well, if we're doing this theory about a kind of, you know, information driven uh, kind of uh, cultural universe that, that's a break, that's something new, you know, let's not be ironic and and kind of uh, about it. Let's like, just leap into it and do it. So he sort of writes this terrific book where he tries to sort of think through um, the structure of Japanese media culture starting in the, uh, uh, 90s maybe, and it's kind of like the – I think the best take on what the transition was towards a sort of fully digital universe, and it's got to do with the uh, the breakdown of uh, grand narratives as a conventional way of understanding what the postmodern was. We get this from Jean-Francois Lyotard. But Azuma says, yeah, but it wasn't in favour of the fragment. It was in favour of the database. Uh, so you no longer have this kind of linear arc that's kind of organising – uh, cultural production understanding, you have database and you can kind of select from it and you select elements and assemble it. And I sort of read this, uh, you know, preparing a, uh, you know, my, my sort of survey course for the liberal studies students at the New School, and I sort of went, oh, my God, that's sort of, that describes the present. That's kind of exactly how the internet works now, but he wrote this before the internet was a thing. Uh, so it just strikes me as, as this moment where a particular context gives you an insight that you can use to kind of understand where we all ended up because we can kind of forget how incredibly advanced uh, Japanese technical and media culture really sort of was and seemed to be before the crash in the, in the 80s and how it spawned all of this.
1: Mm-hmm. And you um, raise the term otaku philosophy here, mm-hmm. right? Do you want to kind of briefly um, define that and just talk about what's particularly interesting about that um, that hasn't already come up?
2: Uh assume it does what uh, British cultural studies used to do which was to take uh, subculture out of the sort of pet, the realm of sort of pathologizing it and looking for problems to kind of go well how are people creating culture if we observe what young people do who have an intimate relation to the new modes in, in media culture, how do we view it as an aesthetic rather than as a problem? So otaku were, were people who, it was mostly young men, and this is where, you know, I, I've got other readings where I'm you know, it, it goes with uh, uh, McRobbie, who's more interested in young women. Uh, mm-hmm. But here it's young men uh, whose form of identity and, and cultural life is about sort of obsessive curating of a particular uh, bit of cultural stuff, it could be historical uh, or it could be something from manga or anime where you just sort of like drill down and you kind of of assemble uh, like a little pocket of knowledge about something completely useless uh, and base your identity on that formation. Uh, And this is already happening in the 90s in Japanese media culture, but it's like, oh, my God, that is now everywhere. Uh, That's Tumblr, yeah? Uh, You know, that's Instagram. That's exactly where we all ended up. So we all became otaku in that sense, but in this non-judgmental sense of not treating everything that happens as a pathology.
1: So the next chapter, um, and I want to make sure that we have a little bit of time to talk about this, is on Paul Preciado, and I don't know if I'm pronouncing anything correctly. Sure. So I'm just going to New jersey this and say <laughs> appreciato. Um, yeah. and the chapter is called the pharma porno body, body politic. Mm. You talk about um, testo junkie, right? The, the text mm-hmm. that you talk mm-hmm. about in this chapter as a work of low theory. And this is a super, super fascinating chapter for all kinds of reasons. Ken, can you open um, this work up for us a little bit for you? What's particularly interesting about testo junkie and the way that it contributes to the larger conversations you're having? In the book.
2: Yeah, and like uh Azuma, uh, but in a different way, Preciado is 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 sort of marginal to the university or was at the time of, of writing it. Uh and is, is now it's now actually a really well-known book. Uh and it's it's sort of asking questions about um two things. Uh, one is the history of the hormone. Uh, You know, I'm of that era where everything was about psychoanalysis and and it starts with, well, you know, the hormone and and the unconscious were discovered at the same time. Or we go down this other route and think about uh, the kind of technical instrumentalizing of the hormonal as an aspect of human life and and other animal life too, although that's not a subject of the book. Uh, And how is that uh, a set of uh, technologies that generates a set of markets that generates new levels of kind of state interest in what bodies are, particularly in what genders bodies are? So the book does that and then partly through uh, Preciado was experimenting with uh, testosterone at this time but outside of an official medical framework. So the book sort of connects uh, a kind of level of self-experiment which uh, the author even compares to Walter Benjamin's taking hash on their own body but with a sort of understanding of, of those techniques. Then the other bit is what if we thought about what happened in post-war culture not so much through – uh, Ford and motor cars, but through Playboy, through the, through Playboy's invention of a kind of architecture and a subjectivity that was sort of like massively heterosexually gendered and sort of treated it as, as a kind of object that you could have a little distance from, but sort of became, sort of ended up everywhere in a sense. Uh, So you sort of read Fordism as this much more sort of libidinal exercise that's producing uh, corporeal technologies of the body uh, alongside producing motor cars and consumer goods and things like that. Uh, So I I found it really enabling and it sort of does this useful thing of of denaturalising the heterosexual and and cisgendered body as, as somehow a default natural state by sort of pointing out, you know, Uh, Birth control hormones are the most widely prescribed thing on the planet. Mm -hmm. uh, More people are on this than anything else. It's in the water, so it's affecting every other living thing for that matter. Uh, And to think all bodies as equally technically constructed, not just trans ones, is the particular agenda of the book. I think, oh, that's really useful to sort of take away that sense of uh, the connection between natural and normative and thinking about the bodies that whatever this mode of production is, is produced.
1: Absolutely, I think this is a really, really important chapter, um, in part because of that. Right, Mm -hmm. there's a a moment on 227 um, where the chapter says hormonal theory represents another form of mass communication. Right, which is I think just brilliant, and I really, I just want to highlight chapter 15 for listeners Mm -hmm. because for me. Thinking the body in this way or bodies, body-ness, body, mm. so whatever, <laughs> there's no the body, right, um, in this way is super productive. And I think mm. in the years to come, we are going to see and I hope we do see a lot more attention to the hormonal mental um, hormones yeah. as of right. I mean, I think there's, there's so much potential here. And if I had a PhD student right now in STS, who yeah. was kind of searching around for a topic that would make a super important book, if not whole field, mm-hmm. it would be hormones right now.
2: Cause we spent a lot of time on DNA and, mm-hmm. and its connection to this information paradigm. Uh, but yeah, hormones are signaling, you know, that it's understood that way. Uh, I think Presbyterian really hit on something there. Absolutely. And and, and as you say, it's kind of the role of low theory is generate you know, kind of out of everyday practices and struggles, these ideas that really need, you know, scholarship that would take you years to do. Absolutely. Uh, I hope hope someone does that too.
1: I I think that will, I think that's hopefully inevitable. And even thinking about how much attention, um, sleep science, right? Mm. Um, Melatonin, what is melatonin? It's a hormone. Um, I I just think there's just so much potential, but if you can believe it, um, and this is shocking to me, we are now almost at the end of our time, Ken. Um, So there are, a kabillion chapters we didn't have a chance to talk about. There is so much more in the book, and we could have spent another hour or two or three just on the stuff um, that we we didn't have a chance to talk about. But given that um, and assuming all that, is there anything in particular that we didn't have a chance to talk about, Ken, but that you'd like to raise or put on the table for listeners before we close? <sighs>
2: If, if I did that, I just, I'm just opening a whole can of
1: worms. (laughs) (laughs) You can open it a little bit. You can let a couple of the worms peek out if you want.
2: No, it's, it's just a, it's a book to be used as a resource. I think, you know, so uh, it it doesn't even need me to interpret it. You just, just kind of like go and go and use the bits that are useful.
1: Great. And what are you working on now, now that the book is out and hopefully um, being widely used and hopefully we can contribute to that with this conversation? Um, what's next for you and what are you currently inspired by?
2: Um, there's a sort of second volume like this one called Sensoria uh, coming out with Verso probably next year. And it's, it's organized more around three fields, aesthetics, which gives us that humanities piece, uh, ethnography and design. Like what happens if you put, you know, groups of things from those three together? So, you know, uh, generally Lex has got like actually about seven different fields. This one's more three uh, and it's a little bit more structured, but it's the same thing. It's, you know, these 4,000 word pieces on particular people. Uh, so that's coming out. And then the other thing is uh, uh, a book, I said more in my own voice, that's called um, Capital is Dead. Uh, and the thesis of that is, and we've already mentioned this, what if this isn't even capitalism anymore but something worse? Like, how would you generate concepts to describe a mode of production where asymmetries of information controls the whole value chain? And it's not just that information became a commodity, the commodity became information, like it changed the commodity form as well. So I think you, you need an intervention in language to sort of start even thinking about that so that we don't just keep thinking that capitalism is eternal. We can just put modifiers on the front of it. Like, I just think neoliberal capitalism is not a concept. Like, it doesn't, Like that's not language that does conceptual work. That's just a a, a placeholder description. So I've tried to at least, you know, sort of poke at the language problem in that book.
1: Awesome. Well, both of those sound um, awesome. And so best of luck with those. And thanks for making time and taking time away from that to talk with me about this one today.
2: Thank you, Carla. I really appreciate your, your questions. And it's always a pleasure.
1: You've been listening to the New Books Network Seminar. Thanks very much for joining us and come back and check us out again next time.